Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to week two of Alfred Hitchcock Unrevealed or Decoded or something. We're not nice. making up names. Thank you. Um, uh, I'm Lucas. You've seen me before. Zach is also here. He feels amazing right now. But yeah. more importantly than us, we have the number one podcast superfan, Michael Campbell, is here. I like podcast super fan. Like he's just the number one super fan of the concept of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't speak. He, by the way, the whole, this is the zag. We, we were talking before the show. That he was preparing to zag for us. I think it might be he's not going to say a word the whole episode. He has told me every conversation we've had about this episode that he was not going to speak and only listen. So he is living up to that so far. Uh, okay. This is, moving on. Last movie you logged on Letterboxd, Zach Ford hit us with the last movie you logged on Letterboxd. Um, the last movie I logged on Letterboxd was, I forgot, like five seconds after I look at it. Um, <laughs> on the rocks, on the rocks, Sofia Coppola's new movie that I love. I, that, I love okay. <laughs> I miss that joke, yeah. and I feel feel bad about myself that I do not understand. <laughs> Sorry, That's the joke. name of the subtitle to off the turn. On the rocks. Okay. Um, it's on the rocks. Every couple of Apple Plus movie that I um, got an Apple subscription just to watch because um, a trial was just like too overwhelming for me to even think about. So I just like just subscribe me. It's okay. Um, it is a, a lovely movie. Um, I think it gets dismissed as being like light and just kind of charming, but I think there is um, some deeper stuff there about, you know, parental, I don't want to say trauma. It's not really about trauma, but the, the complexity of parental um, child connections and the history that kind of never goes away and, um, you know, affects how you view your own adulthood and relationships kind of through that lens created by your parents. Um, Bill Murray doing great Bill Murray things and Rashida Jones um, is kind of the more uh, straight man in a way um, is also, you know, I think because it's such a straight performance, but just the fact that she can play off of Bill Murray so well, as far as being that, you know, back and forth person to make his jokes, you know, work more, but also just how she really you know, lives th that chemistry and that history between them. You can just see it in her face and how she reacts is um, remarkable as well. So I think they're both great performances, good movie. Um, next. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have not seen this yet. I am going to have to steal your Apple TV Plus uh, subscription to get in there and watch this. So that'll be fun. Yeah, um, you did just... I'll, have to, I'll have to do a trial, yeah. Yeah, definitely <laughs> steal that. Definitely high for it. This got sort of uh like mediocre reviews when it first came out but i think it's sort of started to tie it like turn the tie towards good and really good so that's what exactly he he read it highly which is always just i mean that's a fucking i don't know what to think of that like uh, i mean it's a must watch when you put it to the top of your watch list because my praise means more than anything else i do think that it kind of got not buried but um, as far as media coverage, got a little overwhelmed by Borat. I think they should have changed a different week. It came out the same week as Borat and The Witches and Rebecca, the remake, which somehow I feel like also got more coverage. So it seems I mean, like it's, on a different it's, weekend, maybe. It's on Apple TV Plus, a yeah. service that no one has and no one cares about. Hey, rude. I'm not nobody. Okay, but, human but being like, just like I'm you. not. I didn't care not, about it until. It's right. There's like six. We've had this discussion before. There's like seven movies on the entire streaming service. It's yeah. not exactly the one that's going to draw a lot of an audience. And somehow, still pretty hard to find those seven movies. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's. I remember I had it for Greyhound, and you have to like scroll. It's the only website in existence that you have to just scroll down a large list of things hey. to reach the thing you want. There is Look. seven movies. There's Snoopy and Outer Space, my friend, goes to space. There's also Fraggle Rock and New Fraggle Rock. You got the Hensons. You got my pal, Linus and Lucy and Snoopy. And you got Bill Murray singing songs in Mexico. Spoilers. All right. Now that Zach has um, sufficiently plugged the Apple TV Plus service, Mr. Michael Campbell, what is the last movie you logged on Letterboxd? Yeah. So I watched Trick or Treat. Um, yeah, that's a, 
anthology, like Halloween horror movie. It's uh, real interconnected stories you see people from in, in the first scene and then you see them in the background later on in the movie, that type of stuff. Real good good stuff going on. If you break the tradition of Halloween, you spoiler alert, you may or may not get killed. That's basically the premise of the movie. Um, I actually really love it. I watch it every Halloween. It's uh, really fun. It's only like 70 minutes long, so definitely recommend for – you know, adding it to your Halloween uh, playlist. Uh, yeah, it's really good. It's got the classic monster Sam, who is just an icon. He's he's so good. I, I just want to cuddle him up, but you probably stab me. That's um, pumpkin head boy, right? Yeah, That's all yeah, I know. yeah. Okay. He's, he's got like the lollipop kit, uh, but it's like actually slits throats. Or something. As the person, have any, have any, have you you've seen it, right? Or I have not, but I was going to say, as the person who has uh, gotten me into a lot of horror franchises and horror movies as a whole, is this one you think that I would enjoy? Yeah, well, there's also uh, number two coming out, supposed to be coming out in the next couple of years or so. And yeah, I think you definitely dig it. Like, it's got some actors, you know, there's some, some like, sort of, it's real funny at times, like a real funny com uh, comedy. Uh, yeah, there's some cool kills, some cool scares, um, some kids you hate. All right. I mean, that's just. I will never like watch it because they're too lazy to spell the O. If you're too lazy to spell O-R and you have to do a dash for you then you're not worth my time. It's an original movie. There was, I think it's from the 80s or so. No, it's called Trick or Treat. So I think they did that to be different. But yeah, also, exactly. But they were trying not to I, plagiarize. There's a, another way that I think they could have been different, which is not name it fucking Trick or Treat. You're still naming the same goddamn movie. You're not fooling me. Also, Michael, why are you watching Halloween movies? It's November 14th. It's the middle of November. Yeah. Uh, it's actually November. <laughs> hey. So don't listen to him, listeners. Don't listen to him. I mean, Trick or Treat just sounds like a anthology version of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is awesome. So I definitely feel like this is something I should check out. I guess you could say that. Michael and I both love Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Hey, Lucas. Yes. Hey, Lucas. What did you watch? <laughs> Um, the last film I watched uh, was part of a Robert Zemeckis watch through. So it was Forrest Gump, which is. Sounds about what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very white movie. Um, it is. I think it's an really interesting film, though, because this movie initially comes out and it's this huge Oscar play. This is the best movie of the year. And I think over time, people have really soured on that idea and said, you know, it's not the best movie of the year. And I don't think it is. I'm not going to stand here and make an argument for Forrest Gump being the best movie of the year. I do think the movie gets a lot of um, flack for things it doesn't deserve. I think Tom Hanks is really charming. And I think that character as a whole does not work if you don't have Captain Empathy, Captain Charming Tom Hanks playing it. Like, I think in almost anyone else's hands, that character is unbearable. I also think... One of the worst takes to come out of Forrest Gump is that Jenny is somehow the villain of this movie, um, which conveniently ignores the fact that like Jenny was an abused child and had like a really shitty life. So it feels like we're like blaming Jenny for not being consistent throughout her life because her life was really rough and really hard at times. It's a, just a, it's just a really bad take overall. I know Zach uh, would like to jump in because I'm pretty sure he agrees with me on this. It's just a bad take. Yeah, it's the it's the sad boy. I'm a good guy. Why doesn't all the women love me? Point of view, um, because exactly. you know they're like for such a good guy. Jenny owes it to him to love him. Like she owes him anything. She's not entitled to love Forrest. That's uh, it's a very misogynist um, perspective to look at the the film. Um, like in real life, that Jenny's not gonna you know fall in love or have sex with Jenny. Come on, it's already they're living the dream by giving them a chance at all. Yeah, I mean, I think Oshishi does love him as a friend, and I think that um, mm -hmm. in some ways the movie is complicated by the fact that he keeps trying to push beyond what she wants him to be in her life. Like, she wants him to be this really close friend, and I think she's um, – I think he just wants a lot more, and the movie doesn't ever gra grapple with the fact that maybe he shouldn't get that and has to be okay with it. Yeah, and we should just not view things from a male entitlement, you know, lens yeah. – that thinks you know women need to offer themselves up to a man because he he is was quote unquote nice. There are some nature. weird sexual politics in this movie, which includes the early scene in the film where basically Forrest gets into school because his mom sleeps with people. There's some some weird stuff going on in this movie. At the that's beginning. how I got into school. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're that's the, the 
That's the American way. That's why you went to a shitty ass school. Your mom wasn't willing to do what was needed. <laughs> my mom actually does not listen to this podcast. She learned from my previous podcast um, that there's nothing for her to gain from this. So I, I can say those jokes. Uh, <laughs> so. Michael, what's your thoughts on Forrest Gump? Uh, I've been on I've been on that island for like e- forever. I just feel like Jenny is not a villain. She's a complex, complicated character who has flaws. Uh, she also has um, you know good things to give to Forrest. Like like you say, and like you say, like you know she was abused as a child. That's gonna sort of mess you up. Um, and also just the the time period is weird. And also Ferris is like in and out of her life. So it's I don't I don't know it's not like a your normal love story. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess that's the point. But also, like like you're saying, Forrest wants more than she can give. But also, she gave him the greatest gift of all in Lil Forrest Jr. Lil Forrest Jr. So, yeah. you know, uh, I just, yeah, she's a complicated character. It's okay to be like, maybe she did play with his feelings or not. I don't know. That's up to interpretation. Yeah. But she's not some overarch- overarching villain. <laughs> she's not Thanos in this movie. Let's <laughs> relax a bit. Oh, this yeah. is not to like say the movie is perfect. There's a lot of other no, issues in the not. movie. Yeah, yeah, sure. that, is very, not, that is not the one to. to, to it's very goofy at times. About. The entire like forest happens to be with every famous moment in history is a very yeah. goofy premise that does not hold up as like a serious Oscar movie level. Oh, he was randomly doing a dance and then Elvis it's saw it. Like concept. that stuff is. Yeah, yeah. It's a fun concept, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily hold up to scrutiny. But I think it's a very engaging movie. It's it's like two hour, two and a half hours, and I found that I was not sitting there like, oh my god, can you please move on? Like I, I found it very engaging. I think that I mean it's really hard when you watch. Like Tom Hanks is just a very engaging presence on screen, and so yeah. you want to watch Tom Hanks, especially '90s Tom Hanks when he was just absolutely killing it. You want to watch Charles that, and also again to the Jenny thing, and you just made the point, which is at the end we're supposed to see the relationship between him and his son is this really like this really beautiful pure thing where like they really care about each other and there's not like um the acceptance of their differences is really clear so like calling jenny who's the reason that that exists the yeah. villain is just a is just a bizarre take if you watch the movie like you have to create like almost an alternate version of the movie to make a case that jenny is like the ultimate villain or something Hey, because of Forrest Gump, because of the fact that he did so much for history, we were able to have a, a great movie about a British guy who is the only one to remember the lyrics written by Forrest Gump. <laughs> I spent five minutes trying to like word that joke properly in my head. I'm still not very happy with it. It could have been better constructed. Hell yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I still, um, uh, I was going to say, I still cry. I, I cry. I, I get emotional at the end. You know, oh, like absolutely. It, it's, yeah. uh, like I said, it's a long movie. You go on a whole journey through decades of people. Like you're gonna, you're gonna get emotional at the end. And I mean, and who isn't entertained at seeing Forrest just pop up in these random, like historic moments? Like it's a fun concept that doesn't really take into account like the, the issues of some of them, of some of the you know mm-hmm. things that Forrest would be doing. Which, that's you can say what you want, but also it's it's fun. It's a fun watch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so this week we're going to take a small diversion from the typical plan. We're not going to move on to the main film you said because we have a special email from a fan to read on the podcast this week. So I have an email here that um, we've been sitting on. Yeah. Why do we have any fans? I don't know. Zach tries to kill all the fans off every week, and somehow they keep coming Literally back. Literally kill them. Zach tries to murder them. Yeah, Zach is a mm-hmm. All right, so our email comes to us from uh, Marmite Rules with seven Z's at koalamail.com. And it's Koala Mail? What what place in the world would have an email called Koala Mail? Clearly it's China. Um, the, whatever, wherever Sing takes place. Where does Sing take place? The Opera House? I don't know. It's on the Opera House. <laughs> Three men. Wherever Matthew McConaughey is a is neither on the voice of the koala. He's a yeah. yeah. Matthew McConaughey yeah. recording his lyrics. Of course he does. Have you ever looked at a koala and now wish that you spoke in Matthew McConaughey's voice? <laughs> That's true. I want to see a koala koala sell Lincoln's eucalypta. Matthew McConaughey won his Oscar. He's like, what do I do next? Voice a koala, hosting a singing competition, baby. (laughs) All right. So the email, I remember remember it distinctly. 
It was December 24th, 2019, and I sat down next to my bed. I decided to talk to Santa for the first time in quite a while. I'm not someone to ask for gifts for Christmas, but this was different. The year had not been too great, and I was feeling a little down going into 2020. So I asked Santa and asked Santa and asked Santa. For the majority of 2020, I thought Santa had ignored me. I really did. But then again, my message, but then my request was granted. The Christmas gift I so desperately wanted was another podcast starring two white guys who didn't know how technology worked. <laughs> and I'm so very thankful you guys came along to answer my prayer. I really do not know what I'd do without your guys' podcast. It's what we need in 2020. Kind regards. And it is our, our biggest fan, Michael, who is just a wonderful human being. And um, we will definitely be sending some merch too if uh, we stop being cheap. <laughs> I'm but gonna thank send you. A Disney um, princess piano through the mail <laughs> to our biggest fan, Michael Campbell. I hope he I hope he lives close to you in the United States. Otherwise, the postage for that is going to be worth more. I'm just going to throw it in. I'm going to throw it in the ocean. Just hope for the best. <laughs> just wrap the baby. Send the baby over. I think you should tie it to a koala and shoot it with a catapult. That's real complex. I don't have that in me right now. I'm it's like, it's like I don't have to go find a catapult like, or a koala. I barely had the energy to like take it. That joke and have a response to it. Let and actually execute a koala can. Catapult. All right. I can't well, say the word catapult. Let's, let's talk about energy, Zach, because we're going to move on to our 1940 Alfred Hitchcock feature film, which is Rebecca. <laughs> Zach is getting ready. Um, we have to start with, of course, the award-winning segment, Zach's plot summary. Zach, hit it. Uh, so um, they're at a hotel. They're at some place like Monte Carlo. Maybe? Yeah, okay. You're, you're just like slapping your jaw. I take that as a yes. Ooh, that was bad in my own earbuds. Um, anyway, so um, Monte Carlo with um, the unknown main character and her, um, it's like, not mistress, so she's not fucking her. She's a companion to, to oh, yeah, yeah, this widow that keeps care of her. Um, and then... Um, What's his face? Mr. Rebecca um, shows up. He's a big player. Um, you know, the old lady, she's companion is like, this guy, I need to be friends to, with him and talk with him because that means, you know, that people look upon you nicely, that you're, you are like running with the higher classes if you're just, you know, social with the richer people. And um, so through that, meets the companion. They start um, lying about tennis lessons, which is just rude and um, going on long car trips and, you know, nothing sparks romance, like just car trips to nowhere um, through conversation and probably some fucking. Um, and so they decide wow. to marry and they go to Mandalay, the place where all your dreams come true. And um, Mandalay is haunted or not haunted, you know, spiritually haunted um, by his, or his, he's a widower. So his his dead wife, there you go, um, Rebecca. How'd she die? We don't know till the end of the movie because that's how movies work. Um, so, anyways, she's feeling a little like that. The, the, the you know the ghost of Rebecca is kind of hanging over her marriage. Not the literal ghost, but the metaphorical ghost, kind of hanging over her marriage. All, she's worried that all the other employees of the of the state are um, so tied up in how beautiful and great Rebecca was that she'll never live up to it. Um, Shenanigans happen. There's a boathouse. They discover boats. At some point, they think uh, Mr. Rebecca killed her, um, and they they have to to you know solve the mystery. Rebecca disappears, or not Rebecca. The main character disappears for a little bit while they solve all this. She reappears as Mandalay burns down because the um, caretaker um, that had definitely had something for Rebecca, you know, burn it down out of the misery and stress of finding out that. Um, she, she died. I don't know. Anyways, Mandalay burns down. That's it. You don't even need to watch the movie now. I did a pretty perfect job. You got everything. I I emoted the same emotions. That was by far my worst one. <laughs> yeah, it's spoiler. Spoiler, by the way. People. Yeah. Yeah. Well, from no, that's the show. It's all spoilers. Don't watch. Don't listen to this if you haven't seen Rebecca. Yeah. I just didn't know if we were doing a. 
non-spoiler section, and then no, but I guess I will literally open every episode with a major spoiler of the film going forward. That's the new goal. <laughs> we should maybe like say something at the beginning of the show. Hey, this is remember this is a you know all no, no, no. all out. Really. App. It's a 1940 movie. If you haven't seen it at this point, you probably aren't going to see it. That would require if I say a spoiler, does it count because I don't actually make sense or have um, words that can be I, heard clearly? I've, I've, I'm convinced I watched a different movie, so I did. You did <laughs> I probably watched the same movie yeah. Michael has convinced you watched, though. If you've seen the trailer, Rebecca, you basically know what happens. That's yeah, a joke for eight people. <laughs> wow. Thank you, everyone. All right. Um, let's get started with, um, last episode, we talked about how Robert and I was kind of the classic Hitchcock male lead, and then he's very charming and very charismatic, and you really like him. And I think Lawrence Olivier is really interesting in the canon of Hitchcock lead males, because he's obviously, um, an incredible actor. He obviously looks very charming, but the performance is somewhat cold because the character requires him. He's not as, um... Like out there and exuberant, as um, you would see the traditional Hitchcock male lead, and I think this is kind of an interesting choice for Hitchcock. He comes to America, he brings Olivier, this really famous actor, along with him, and then he almost never works with an Olivier type again. So this is kind of a, this is a sort of an only. It's a very unique film in Hitchcock's filmography for a lot of reasons. It's very much the like transition from England to America. So you got like. You know, the, the one of the most British just appealed actors that were around the time but had a you know mainstream Hollywood audience as well. So it really I think helped take his, you know, tone, um, the Hitchcock tone into the American audiences. He was a good, you know, uh I forgot all words. I might only my di my whole language might be down to twenty words right now. So we're gonna go on to Michael, who's gonna speak very intelligently about what you're saying. Go. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Lawrence Olivier is definitely an actor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, what what do you mean by like Lawrence Olivier type though? Like, how, like, like what do you mean by that? Oh, I mean, British. I think I think he, I think he is. Um, he has the talent of the acting lead you want in a Hitchcock movie. He has a look you'd want, but he doesn't. He He's not as um, charismatic or talkative as you typically see in a Hitchcock movie, where the male lead kind of is like less jokes. knowledge, less knowledgeable of the overall plot and the tragedy or yeah. the mystery. Um, typically, yeah, yeah. the male lead is the guy who doesn't know what's going on, and is kind of just like charming his way through the situations as he tries to figure it out. In this movie, you kind of flip it on his head. Fontaine plays more of the traditional male lead in that she's the one who's kind of trying to figure everything out. And he's kind of the colder, um, more reserved performance. And the guy who also just knows more about what the overall tragedy, what the mystery of Rebecca, of what's happening at Manderley is. I would say that also comes with it being hit by far his most romantic movie or his most like true, just a romance. So what he needs from his leads is naturally going to be different. Laurence Olivier is, you know, mm -hmm. is a more theatrical actor. He can pull that romantic side, I think, a little stronger than Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart. Now there's romances in there, but they're not the focus of the movie or they're not dealt with, you know, as much kind of sweep and melodrama yeah, from, as like, Rebecca. Me, me up until, like, marriage, up until the house gets burned down. But, yeah. Yeah. Or, like, I mean, some... I, you know that movie, like the Woman in Black. I swear, like they just took that look of the housemaid from here and just like, she, I mean, she was creeping me out, man. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, Wait, yeah. you're trying to say someone was inspired by a Hitchcock movie? I never would have guessed. Shocker. Yeah. No, I have actually. I haven't seen the film The Woman in Black, but uh, the the I have seen the trailer, and yes, I can see where you get the connection to Danvers. Yeah, Danvers is really creepy. She's a really it's weird great. presence. And she's just like really harsh at all times. Like, you know, Joan Fontaine is like trying to be nice to everybody. Like her whole thing going in is like trying to be nice, trying to be understanding, not trying to cause a problem. Like she's not throwing her weight around or trying to like take over. And yeah. Danvers treats her doing almost nothing as like trying to take over the household, trying to push Rebecca out. Like she's like so nice. And Danvers is just not. 
having any of it. Yeah, from this was my second time watching it. And hey, Sharon. Hey, buddy. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but from my um, original watch, my memory would have been that she was much more kind of manipulative in a way and a little more mysterious but like watching this is she you she shows her cards like right away she's just like immediately yeah. like i like rebecca you don't need to be here it was kind of the you know physical um manifestation of the kind of rebecca spirit hanging over that it all mm -hmm. was kind of captured and how miss danvers um welcomed um what are we going to call her the woman mrs What's her last name? She's the second lady to winter. Yeah, just, okay. just call yeah. her. Um, lady, we call her lady to winter. Yeah, sure. Okay. John sure. Fontaine. John Fontaine, that still works. That works. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think also, like, there is a little bit of in the back of your mind, just like, is she just super, uh, is damaged, just like super protective of Maxim? Like, you don't immediately mm -hmm. go, oh, she's in love with, like, Rebecca. Like, so. That's also a part of like you figuring that out. Like there's, like you said, I mean, she's also cold, but she's also, I mean, I think the turning point is like the dress where she tells uh, mm. Joe Fontaine to wear the dress. That's sort of the turning point because before then, yeah. I think there was like, I think the breaking of like the statue thing had to come up where she wasn't like, you know, super upset or, I mean, she didn't even force that to happen. So you're just like, yeah, she's pretty cold. It's the new lady coming in she's is she a gold digger you know that type of thing and then you as the movie goes on you realize like no nah, that's a lot, lot more than that so yeah 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 it is interesting. Okay. she doesn't have like actually too much to do for a while like she's there as as a present she's there to be you know, an antagonist because they really yeah the standing being creepy because they really <laughs> save it up you still like um not understand but like are freaked out about by this character enough that by the time they want her to be a focal point, the last three minutes of the movie, and she's just like looking real creepy and, and manic in the windows as Mandalay burns down. It was it's still really effective and still makes sense, you know, plot wise. And she was like, she was open about like showing uh, number two, like the West Wing. You know, she's like, if you, you just could have just asked me, you know, she was showing the big bed, the wardrobe, and all that yeah. stuff. So you're like. Okay, she's she's opening up. You know, she's warming to number two. Uh, nope. The movie does a really good job of kind of we learn about things as Joan Fontaine does. So she yeah, comes to Manderley and she has no idea what's going on. She doesn't understand the dynamics. Yeah. She doesn't understand what everybody's motivations are. And we kind of learn like we're in her perspective. She's very much the perspective character in that we're following her and going. I don't get what what's going on with Danvers. Why is she, she seems kind of nice in moments? Maybe she's being helpful. Like you get you get kind of like the whole roller coaster, and then you know, she's trying to figure out why is her husband, who seemed so nice and friendly, and you know, and when they were in France, is now like acting so cold and so harsh and disappearing. And then they've got like the random brother and sister, and then the guy that's showing up that nobody understands. She's just kind of thrown in this weird position where she's left on her own all the time. And then, but also then gets exposed to all these different people, but she has no context for understanding who these people are or what they're doing there. Yeah, there's never a sense of comfort. She's always, you know, outside her zone. She never gets to fully adapt. And, and you know, in a way, that's the lingering, you know, curse of um, number one. Um, once again, she's not, not an actual spirit, actual ghost, but just that lingering, how she kind of, Number one was able to manipulate everyone around yeah. to believe it and control Mandalay. That makes anyone else trying to, you know, replace her, um, you know, impossible. She's controlling the strings even after her death because that's the footprint she was able to have. Yeah, because every everything in the house just reminds Maxim of like number one. So type of thing. Where, and obviously, we'll find out why that is or like why. I don't know. Yeah, like you said, there's just a shadow lingering over, and there was there is one part where number two does get like sort of comfortable and like sort of takes control and be like, "I want this, I want to do this," and then but it didn't really last too long. That leads to the dress incident because that's when yeah. Mrs. Danvers like you're getting too comfortable and it always will come back. She's never able to you know overcome that shadow. Yeah, yeah. Until until the house breaks down, that's her, that's her freedom. That's where she's able to you know form her own you know relationship they're on with um Lawrence Olivier. She's like, yeah, so I can now finally build my own fifty bedroom apartment house. I think they just ran lived in the boathouse. 
Yeah. I don't think they went and lived in the boathouse. Just just a heads up. I think they probably went back to <laughs> wherever they were in France in that fancy place and not in the boathouse. Yeah. But I think um Manderley as a location is just such a wonderful Hitchcock location. And that just it has this really regal large spreading it's got that classic english manor house feel where you can have all these different rooms so you get like you can imagine hitchcock getting to play with this set and being like this is awesome i can have the cool dining room and the stairs and then some weird room like the, oh i can have a wing that was shut off because it used to be rebecca's wing and then you also get all like um the trees around the overgrowth so you get to kind of play with like the house is a representation of like the rot of what's happened in post Rebecca, like the house hasn't changed because he hasn't been able to move on, even though he has the new wife. And um, there's always like the weird stuff. You get like the weird guy down in the boathouse and you sort of don't really know what's going on with him. And you also like, there's people coming and going in the way that you can with like this really large house without everybody knowing about it. And it's just this great location for Hitchcock to play with and set up his like, weird almost mystical um imprint of rebecca on everything and it just kind of permeates the entire house because it hasn't changed yeah there's literally one scene where a dude is just chilling in the window and it's like this is a normal occurrence in this house like mm. he's just like patting the dog good old jasper and just chilling in the window and damn is just like oh yeah oh, that's that's cousin eddie he, he does that sometimes <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the magic of having an estate as your setting, which is where you can make essentially a single house, it's, you know, much more of a full world in a way, a world of characters. There's still, you know, plenty of characters to be around there and plenty of rooms. And I, just, I think there's some level of cynicism in how most of the estate is designed. It, it, there, it, there seems a little bit of satirizing the big the big open spaces. It all just kind of seems like unnecessary. It's there for show. Like even, you know, I think Manderley is kind of, or not Manderley, so even you know, Laurence Olivier seems kind of like over it in a way, mm -hmm. Ray for it to bring quote, quote, to where the only like safe zone, the place of comfort is, you know, the library, the place of intelligence, the only place that wasn't fully open and kind of unused, the place that was filled to the brim with books and furniture in life in a way was the one place of, you know, of safety. And the one place that probably Rebecca didn't have her fingers on. There's one lesson to learn from here. It's you feel safe in the library, go to the library. I mean, you know, I, yeah. Yeah, so as long as you ignore the guy masturbating in the corner of the computer, it's yeah. a very safe place to be. <laughs> it is shocking. Uh, to, that is a shockingly common occurrence in libraries that you think they do a better <laughs> job of stopping because it's going to become a joke in like 20 movies if they just don't stop it. <laughs> Probably already is. Um, so, we, I mean, we talked a bit about, you know, John Fontaine as a character because that's her character name. But, um, her performance, I think, is very remarkable. I think as, you know, on face level, as a vocal performance, it's very kind of classical in its way. It's still, oh, ooh, ah. um, the reason my wife doesn't watch oh, it before do the 1960s, uh -huh, speak like the rest of the show, like this. It's the mid-Atlantic like, accent. You speak your fragility. Um, but I think the way she acts with her posture is where it's truly remarkable. Um, that's where it, she's kind of wearing her class in a way. She's just a little more slouched, a little more like head forward to where she never seems fully comfortable in any you know situation she's in as far as talking to people outside her comfort zone. Uh, and I think that's a lot of characterization just in how she you know, sits with her body. That's like, you know, it's very accurately thing to do now, especially um, it's like um, method acting kind of became a thing, you know, living it in your soul. But I think for the 1940s, um, not as common. It is always like, you always have good posture. You always project your voice and that's how you act. But I think this was a little more unique in how she presented herself. I think she's really good at playing um, like naive. She plays naive yeah. really well. She comes in, this is clearly this world of upper class, like the world he's that he lives in is 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 unique to her. She is she she I think she it's hinted at in the beginning, it's maybe not going to do much. She was not particularly high class. I don't think her family was particularly well off. She even talks about her dad dying and having to get a job related to that. That clearly indicates that she was not of the upper class of the aristocracy. Um and she just plays that really well. She has this naivete and this lack of understanding, but also this really like this sweetness. She's like she really does think, go into every situation not knowing what's going to happen and thinking that if she's nice to people, then people will be nice to her and like her back. And you see that, like, she really doesn't know how to deal with Danvers because she's never been in a situation mm -hmm. 
where she's not just nice and polite and people are instantly just nice and polite back to her. So like she's completely thrown by this idea that this woman who has never met her, doesn't know anything about her would just have this instant animosity to her. And just, you can watch it throw her. And she even keeps trying as the scenes go on until she like reaches the breaking point and she says, I'm the Mrs. De Winter. And then like it even ends up going back on that because that's just clearly not who she is. She can try to do that in a moment of anger, but it's not who she is. And um, yeah, her whole, uh, like naive, sweet, honest, um, polite thing. It's just completely thrown by the inhabitants of Manderley. I think, yeah, I mean, and uh, she can, she can hold a tennis racket and that, that's basically, if you can do that, you just get cast in the Hitchcock movie. So, so, this, yeah, I, this is a very anti-tennis movie, though, for Hitchcock-loving tennis. Where they're like, fuck, they even say they don't like tennis. They go, do you even really like playing tennis? They go, no, we're going to drive in a car instead. How is driving through the middle of nowhere in the countryside more exciting than a nice competitive game of tennis? You can fall in love with tennis. There's like all sweat. Those, there's handles. I mean, come on. If I go X. You know, they acted like tennis was only for like the the old woman, like the snobbiest of snobs. Okay, I grew up a poor boy, eh, middle class boy, <laughs> in Lorain, Ohio, in a poor city, where I had to pay for my own tennis lessons by working part time at a movie theater. Um, is not just for rich people; it's also for those that just um like to have a sport they can shine in because they're not very good at baseball. Um. <laughs> um, I do want to go back to Joan Fontaine a little bit um, for the next hour. Um, is I, I think the the naivete that um, you're discussing is not only important in the characterization, but I think also important in the chemistry developing between the two because that's what Olivier is, you know, attracted to. It's it's something that was a different vibe than he was getting with mm -hmm. Rebecca or with Number One. Um, so that his whole, I think, attraction came from her being from a different world. So he was so, I think, done with that Mandalay-esque, you know, life and atmosphere that this was refreshing to have her, you know, wide-eyed um, kind of perky and nervous, you know, individual welcome into his life. And I feel like that the chemistry really, you know, works and they're so different people and such different performers. But I think you can see the attraction. They're also just like damn hot. So of course it works. <laughs> well, yeah, I was gonna say like, I sort of was struggling with the romance. I mean, at first, like, cause as you guys have said, like Libre is very cold to her. And I'm like, like a certain point, what is she like seeing him? But I do love the way that it sort of wraps up and he's fully like in love with her. I, I bought that at the end. It's just first half, like he was very cold. It was just anything he, anything she did. He was just like, oh, why, why would you do such a thing to offend me? Blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't know, he'd started to off like a French Italian person. <laughs> 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 I mean, I think if you're gonna talk like that, and I'm gonna talk in my 1940s actress voice, and we have a like, number one podcast, and I'm gonna mute, and I'm gonna mute both of you and talk about the movie. Um, I think it makes sense, though. I think he's very. I think he talks about in the film about how like Rebecca was very forward and very controlling and very mm -hmm. demanding. So I think that part, like yeah, yeah. I think she was. I think in some ways, when he meets Joan Fontaine, part of it is he's really guarded and worried about ending up in another situation with another person who he would think initially was the right person and then would very quickly realize is wrong. And I think he also just didn't know how to respond to somebody who was so earnest and like so out in the open emotionally. Like yeah, she is just, right. she is out there. She's just like, Hey, I like you. Hey, let's go. Like there's no, there's no game. She's not trying to play a game. She's not trying to pull some trick and like tell him one thing now and something or anything like that no, she's, yeah, yeah she, she's just there she's just hey i like spending time with you can we go for a drive like there's a there's a purity to her that i think he doesn't even know how to respond to initially and the reason why it probably works so much in the ending is you know a purposeful result of you know how they're what they're trying to evolve that character of um Lawrence olivier it, because as, as you're saying he was still you know in a way not over rebecca like she was still overhanging him um, and her death, because he, he was still feeling, you know, the partial blame for it too, um, as well, that was still hanging over him. So he was never able to be his true self in the welcoming. So once, you know, they find the body, he gets, um, you know, 
he's deemed innocent of of her murder and the house burns down all that is kind of washing away everything that was holding him back from fully embracing you know that relationship and moving on so then he would that romance really really starts to blossom in the last five seconds with the sexiest kiss on the screen it's real sexy <laughs> so you could say almost that the burning of manderley is the destruction of everything rebecca the, the rebecca cloud that had been hanging over his life I guess you could say it was a metaphor, maybe. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know my movie is one. <laughs> it's a are metaphor you, for life and humanity. Are you saying that Hitchcock movies are somewhat more than just what's on the surface? Not all. I think this one was. Now, some of them more pretty surface, I think. <laughs> let's talk about, let's go back to the, um, so Rebecca and the concept of what happened with the death of Rebecca. So initially in this film, we are told that he had a previous wife. She was named Rebecca. She died. Or not. Accident. Yeah. It's what? like she drowned, she drowned in like a burning accident is sort of what they, cause I remember that one dude at dinner like, oh, do you sell? You, you, you shouldn't. And then it's like, everyone's like, dude, the dude's wife died in a sailing accident. Why would you say that? <laughs> he's, the, he's the real idiot of the dinner party who just brings up the yeah. uncomfortable <laughs> subject. He's exactly. like, yeah. He's like, so what does your wife do, Maxim? Why she's literally sitting next to him? He's like, and Maxim is like, uh, she sketches sometimes. Like, like, great, really great job, scene. I know a lot about my wife. <laughs> it's like I've spent a grand total of twelve minutes with her. <laughs> no, she but then it's can on her own. So you know, it's okay. Uh... She she hangs out on the stage. She takes care of the stage. That's what she's into. She's into Mandrillai. So That's as we go. As we go on, um, we're start characters in the film start to give us the indication that uh, Rebecca's death may not have been as cut and dry as oh she was out sailing and a boating accident happened, and so there is an accusation leveled at um, Laurence Olivier that he had killed his wife, and they go into a whole um, inquiry. They find the boat, they find her body, and then there's this weird part of the movie where um, it's revealed that her body was in the boat and not washed up on shore that was buried in the grave. So it takes like a sharp shot. left turn, so yeah. It, is, it does really take a very, it is very much like a, oh, it's weird being at Manderley with Rebecca's, go with Rebecca's spirit hanging over this, and then it's just like, really hard turn, and then they start talking and um yeah so it's maxim explains then the whole scene of maxim of like when they're in the in like the cabin or whatever and that's when the twist of the movie is revealed like yeah after they find out that a body was Rebecca's. yeah right and then um the guy we had seen story. earlier uh who was described by danvers as um Rebecca's favorite cousin. This is where the yeah. movie gets really weird. I think it's just, her real cousin. It's the 40s. I think they're still fucking. They're very much fucking because yeah, they literally talk he about the scene. It's his baby. Right. Yeah. No. That's, that's, that's what I interpreted. Well, I interpreted it as he thought it was going to be. Yeah, he thought like, it was his baby. baby was going to be his. Yeah. Right. And then so. Max cousin could be a cover, though. Maxime reveals he did sort of accidentally kill Rebecca in a fight. Like it wasn't intentional, it but she led, up, like, she yeah, had led to her her death. So then but he his way of right the way his way of dealing with this is to put her in a boat and drill holes in it from the inside in a way that causes it to sink. Which again is a ridiculously complicated way of trying to hide the body. Because even if he didn't. It's not his fault that she died. He's that's still a shitty thing. Like he should still be probably going to prison. He still hit her yeah, body in a second boat. It's suicide. Why not? Okay. <laughs> and the movie is resolved because they end up going to the doctor Rebecca had been seeing in London, and found out that she wasn't carrying her favorite cousin's child, which is a weird sentence to say in the first place. She had cancer and was dying anyway. And sort of the final reveal of this film is that the inquiry lets Maxim off to go be happy with Joan Fontaine. Well, also, she was using the name Danvers. Yeah, she was using, like, there's a lot of, there's a, 
there's a lot of weird stuff going on. Um, and because they rule it as a suicide because she had cancer. They rule so it, that she's got plausible. Like that's that's all they're looking for. Yeah. Right. It is possible she could have committed suicide by getting on a boat and drowning herself, which um <laughs> on what planet is a suicidal person <laughs> going to get in a boat, open like holes so that the boat can sink as a way of dying? Also, on a unrelated note, if you're actually suicidal and they put you in a boat and start sinking. I'm pretty sure at some point some survival instincts would kick in and be like, maybe we shouldn't sit in the bottom of this boat and let ourselves drown. It just seems I mean, like they a say that like people who jump off bridges like while they're falling, they immediately regret it. You know, just that type of instinct. And she's oh, just yeah. like, yeah, like that type your, of thing. Yeah. Your body doesn't really want you to 40s. die. We can, we can just excuse you. Know, it was the 40s. So yeah. I mean, it does definitely feel like on some level it's guess, uh, technically the 30s. Actually, it's probably May 39. So. Well, yeah, I, the book isn't pretty. I thought it took place even an older time. Does it? Um, I don't yeah. know if it's ever given. I'm specifically ever said. It does feel like a little bit like they were just looking at this and going, "Oh, she's a woman. Oh, she's probably emotional and decided to drown herself in a boat." Yeah. Like they didn't. I feel like they would have if it was a male subject. They probably would not have. They maybe would have thought more critically about the uh, suicide by uh, putting yourself in a boat that sinks. I I like the one guy's defense, the like boatkeeper's defense of why she didn't kill herself. And she's just, it would never happen. She's a super sailor. She's the best sailor I've ever seen. There's no way she could die in a boat. So we now know Rebecca is a super sailor. And that is definitely, um, will be upheld in court that she did not die in an accident. But like Rebecca, like when about the whole doctor scene, when the doctor, you know, reveals that she has cancer and it's like you have a couple months to live rebecca like is on like some csr miami shit she's like oh it won't be that long like what the what are you why are you dropping one line to just your random doctor like that that i mean yeah i know and also like the dude their favorite cousin just let that line go like i, could, I feel like he could have easily turned around and be like see she thought that the husband would kill her like blah blah, blah. Mm. but that apparently confirmed it was a suicide but yeah, it was the 30s. That's what you yeah. say. But. And then I guess the final reveal from this is that um, Maxine believes Rebecca was trying to provoke him to kill her because she wanted to ruin his life in death, which is incidentally sort of what happened anyway, yeah. even though he got away with her murder. Yeah, it's basically explaining the whole atmosphere of the movie before. That this was all planned for her to have this, you know, shadow of everything that would happen in Manager Play. It was all, you know, planned in a way. Absolutely. It is um, weird. I, I do it think that this ending is probably, um, I, from my understanding, and I've read the book because I'm a Philistine, but my understanding of the, the book and the, I think the remake is that I think this you know, ending or it's more like the whole second half of the story that the, you know, the court case and, and, and the mystery of finding out, you know, did he kill her or not is, is a bigger portion that I think Alfred Hitchcock just like really didn't care about that part. He was more into the, you know, the Gothic atmosphere and, um, you know, the metaphorical ghost part of it that he's just like, I guess I have to give the plot now. So he just like rushed it in the last 10 minutes of the movie um, to deliver the story. That's part of it, but it, it's definitely rushed. It is interesting, though, that the cousin is like, hey, I'm going to prove that she was murdered by admitting that I had an incestual relationship out of wedlock with my cousin. It's a weird self-incrimination. I don't think he is her cousin. This is what I'm saying. I think that was a cover. That's what he said so he can just be like, yeah, I'm allowed yeah, to walk it, you're not it was Dan who just said it, right? Uh, no, he's her, first, he, he never, he's her first cousin. Give like, me the proof. Show me the family tree. Show me the genetics. In the book, he's her first cousin. In the movie, he's listed as her first cousin. That's not a name. It's the actual thing. Not even second cousin. No, they they, they went. Rebecca, they, Rebecca was afraid. <laughs> Rebecca, uh, clearly mentally deranged, and messed up poor Maxim for quite a while. Even though he sort of did murder her, and then I mean, he do came a terrible out of this like Jack Fontaine. Like, what the fuck? Like, it is weird that the guy who commits murder gets away to like gets to burn his crappy old house. And probably make Jer money out of it, and get like, shown funding. 
He's like, yes, I, I hit her, I struck her, and then she fell and drove on. He's like, so it wasn't your fault. That's okay. As long as you, as long as you didn't physically push her into that that part where she hit her head, it's okay. It's like you, you just got to ignore the part where he just struck his wife, and like also you're believing it just straight up. Like if he, if he was capable of strict like hitting his wife, I'm sure he'd be capable of killing her if he really wanted to. But you know. Joan Fontaine does what Joan Fontaine does. She's it's just, it's again, it's like this, her super innocence of just being like, she's looking for any opportunity to say, oh, it wasn't him. Oh, it was her. Like she's looking for any reason to not believe the worst. Like she thinks the worst initially, and then she spends the rest of the time trying to find any explanation that makes it not be the worst thing. She she came in with the clutch fainting uh, sequence in the courthouse though. Everyone was looking, everyone was looking at Maxim, and then she's like, "I got to pull some shit." And she fainted, and all of a sudden the attention was on her. So what a what a wife, man! What a wife. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, a couple quick uh, things we should mention. This is, of course, kind of the one Alfred Hitchcock movie that receives awards acclaim. So this one, uh, Best Picture and best cinematography hitchcock was nominated for best director but did not win um it's kind of interesting to be honest that rebecca is the one sense. movie i think it makes sense just because of what the oscars tend to go for which is this is a lot more it's a romance it's a lot more sweeping it has you know a very atmospheric kind of like not an epic movie but kind of has an epic feel to it it's not this plot-based genre movie that you know he became so famous for before that it's hard for them to get um, awards. This is more or less a serious, you know, version of what a Hitchcock movie can be. Yeah, I mean, it also does, I guess, give us an indication that um, Alfred Hitchcock, for whatever acclaim he has now as one of the greats of cinema history, <laughs> was very much popular cinema back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and even to the 60s. Like, his movies were popular mystery movies. These were basically the movie version of the airplane novel you would get, which would have, like, you know, some attractive people and some romance and some action and then, like, a good mystery. Like, he was making popular movies. In some ways, um, I always, when I think of Hitchcock, I, I always think of uh, Dickens and the idea that these people are highly critically acclaimed now, but in the time when they were creating their art, they were just writing it for everyone to be enjoyed by the masses. And it's just kind of interesting to watch the, the, how they're looked at, how much that has changed over time. I sort of think that's like what David Fincher has been in the last like 20 years. He makes a very populist movies, like sort of Gone Girl. That's very accessible to the mainstream social network, mm -hmm. um, which is a bit different from Hitchcock. But like Zodiac, that's a mystery thriller. Panic Room, a mystery thriller. Seven, it's not exactly mainstream, but like the game is pretty mainstream. It's a mystery thriller. Like I, I think Dead Future has a lot of those tendencies of just making a, you know, popular genre movie that is accessible to a lot of people, and you know, doesn't really get the awards. Like the social network is basically features. Um, I guess probably Benjamin Button is uh, Hitchcock's Rebecca in terms of like the type of movie Oscars give. Yeah, as in a great movie, one of his best movies, just like Rebecca is one of Hitchcock's best movies. I agree. I can confidently say you will not be seeing the Benjamin Button on this podcast, even though I have nothing. Wait, about, so. that is not, not <laughs> you on it. That, they, I will now promise you that we will not talk about Benjamin Button. I'm not talking about Benjamin Button. I will do my one man app and I will we, somehow, I will do it backwards. Just so we're clear, audience, if you would <laughs> like to see Benjamin Button, we will be covering the entire Piranha franchise on one, on one, uh, one month. We will be covering the entire Lake Placid franchise on one month, and the entire Anaconda franchise on one month for Zach to get his Benjamin. I will give you that, so I can do an episode <laughs> on Benny Button called by its proper name, Benny Butt. Do not talk Benny about Budgewood. Actually, interesting enough, I think Rebecca was really interesting the second time because the first time I watched Rebecca, it was like the seventh or eighth Hitchcock movie I'd ever seen. I was watching it after a bunch of like the Cary Grant, James Stewart ones. And I found this movie like really cold and um, not as good as I thought I was going to like it. And I think on rewatch, I liked it a lot more How because old How old maybe 15 or 16. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's just interesting because I think that I had, I think the first time I watched it, I came into it with this mindset of what an Alfred Hitchcock movie is charming Cary Grant or charming James Stewart in you know, they're more like heroes, upbeat characters. And I think coming into this was very much different. But I think on second watch, um, the complexities of this film and like the real craft 
really shown through in a way that I had not noticed the first time. So I was really glad uh, I got to rewatch this. Um, I would like to ask uh, Zach, any uh, final thoughts on Rebecca? Hey, yeah. Um, one, there's a great chicken. Um, well, you corrected me before the show. It's not wings. It is chicken legs. Um, but at the end, this is how you know the cousin's a jackass because he's just out there eating chicken legs in the nice car like a heathen. <laughs> Um, it was a badass scene. You own that. That's how you control a conversation. It's like, you think you're going to have, you know, any say in what's about to happen? No, because I'm going to eat chicken wings and um, I'm dominating everything. Um, that's how I put my authority in place in my classroom is I eat chicken wings while I start my class and no one's going to say anything to me. Um, also, Lawrence Olivia's hair is real great. And um, I, I I did cry during this movie, just like Michael cries at the end of Forrest Gump, uh, mainly um, reminiscing about my my past thick hair and what's become. I used, it could have been Lawrence Olivier um, if I just maintained that that wonderful do on top. Zach, can I ask an important question? Is it about my ball? Chicken... No, it's about your chicken eating. Yeah. Um, when you eat the chicken in the classroom, do you throw yeah. the bones on at the children on the floor or out the nearest window? No, I just drop them. Like as soon as the last meat goes, I just drop it, and then I tell kids clean up at the end of class. <laughs> he also gets them to like lick his fingers. <laughs> okay, now that's gonna get me fired if, if that one gets caught. Zach, Zach Ford not... does not actually eat chicken. This is all a joke. Please don't fire him. He needs a job. No, I don't eat chicken wings. I just eat live chickens. In class. Please get me right. <laughs> this is biology class. <laughs> language arts we're talking about rebecca and the language arts and i'm just gonna reenact it by eating chicken wings inside of an old classic car brought to the classroom all right anything else no nothing i say matters in this world anymore Go to you did have a unique your children came up with a uniquely interesting take on wizard of oz which um oh yeah very impressed by this is very insightful um and just hadn't come up with myself but that dorothy is really the villain and the bad guy and probably should go to jail the whole time because she not only murders a witch but then steals that bitch's shoes she takes the shoes off of the woman she murdered as her own that's some, to be honest some this does sort of feel like their version of the jenny is the villain of forrest gump no she steals the woman's shoes she that's gets not. sent to a magical land without getting a choice wait you're saying that you would be upset if you got sent to a magical land. She got lucky to like learn about life by, by watching kill. talking lions in 10 minutes. I wish I could go to Oz. What are you saying? That's not a punishment. The first witch she kills is accidental. She's in a house that's flying in a hurricane. She's okay, no so have some her. empathy. Bury her. You don't take her damn shoes. You're going to see a dead man on the street. You're going to take his shoes. The house of her. Dude, the 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 remember the the legs shrivel up and disappear. The witch gets rid of her. Your students oh, yeah. didn't read the book. Here we go. I'm not even convinced they saw the movie. They just know that they're shoes. It started by wait, Wizard of Oz. There's something about slippers, right? That's what the first kid said. <laughs> sort That's of. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, moving on. Why don't we have the spinoff show with the the students? So you can fucking yeah, we'll live stream from my class. We'll all, I'll Skype we'll in. Them on Zoom. Yeah, the fuck kids. <laughs> Michael Campbell <laughs> hates children. <laughs> all right, Mr. Campbell, our esteemed guest. Uh, final thoughts on the film, Rebecca? Uh, yeah, it was good. I th I, th I really liked the uh, the second half more than the first half. Um, I also, you know, may no may may have watched it at like three a.m. in the morning, uh, like a couple of hours ago. After, uh, I was pretty tired, so I, I might actually rewatch it like soon, just to, because I sort of have no idea what happened. Um, Thank you for doing the thoughtful watch after we take the podcast, Jackass. Last time you're on the show, you lose your productive duties. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I can think of nothing more appropriate for this. this <laughs> <laughs> At least Absolutely. you spoke, and that's the best we're gonna get out of you. Uh, I'm glad I watched it. Like you said, it was Hitchcock's best picture winner. You know. Uh, his prestigious movie, but uh, it's really good, and I can, I can die now knowing that I've seen Rebecca. Yeah, hey, so, yeah. good movie. By the way, it's November in America, and we're all basically dying right now, so we're, we're good. Yeah, big fun. Um, we're not talking about that. Rebecca, really good movie. <laughs> really, really good movie. Um, enjoyed it a lot on rewatch. Let's move on to 1940s Hitchcock. I'm going to do a quick rundown of the movies from the 1940s. 
and then we can talk about any of them any of us have seen. Um, this is kind of Hitchcock's big explosion. He comes to America in 1940 with Rebecca. He does Foreign Correspondent the same year. Then he does Mr. and Mrs. Smith, 1941. Does not seem to be related to the Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie film. Um, Suspicion, 1941 as well. Saboteur, 1942. Shadow of a Doubt, 1943. Lifeboat, 1944. Spellbound, 1945. Notorious, 1946. The Parroting Case, 1947. Rope in 1948. And Under Capricorn in 1949. It's kind of insane that you would make one movie or more a year for an entire decade. That's just really prolific how, and kind of impressive. That's how like everyone was in the 40s though. They just like needed constant production. No, but also taking into account the quality of these films, there are quite a lot of really excellent films on that list. I know for one, I really like Shadow of a Doubt, which is this uh, film where Teresa Wright from uh, Best Years of Our Lives is um, plays Joseph Cotton's niece and throughout the yeah, film, named Charlie, I believe. Yeah. Yes, re realizes that her uncle realizes her uncle, who is her favorite uncle, may not be as nice of a person as she would like to think he is. Oh, um, sorry, she's a different favorite uncle than Rebecca's favorite cousin. We'll just sort of say that. Yeah. Yes, there is no incest <laughs> in Shadow of a Doubt. Just so we're clear. So if you have an incest meter that does not allow you to watch films, Shadow of the Doubt is okay. And then Lifeboat, really good. Lifeboat's a really is, fun, like, in Is there location. no incest in Lifeboat? Let's do this with this whole filmography. Please? <laughs> I don't think there are incest in any of these movies. I have seen all of these but Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Under Capricorn. Um, I just said we start our own website, like, version of, like, does the dog die? Like, are there, uh, is there incest in this? So our version, our version of the uh, Knocked Up website, but we're just writing yeah. yes or no incest category. Um... <laughs> This will be, this will, I mean, I can see my, you know, my house getting raided after creating that website. <laughs> <laughs> um, Michael, uh, these movies from yeah. the 1940s besides Rebecca, have you seen any of them? And uh, do you have any thoughts on this decade? Uh, I've seen Saboteur, Shadow of a Doubt, Rope. What other ones were there? Oh, give me a sec. I forgot the others. I think... I think that might be it from the 40s. It's just fast enough. Okay. Um, yeah, those are the only ones from the 40s I've seen. I I do want to see Under Capricorn to the library. Uh, uh, I do want to see like Spellbound and Notorious. I just haven't really <clears throat> found them yet. But I, I like Saboteur. That's a nice sort of, you know, thriller. Have any of you seen it? Yeah, Saboteur yeah. is um, yeah, it's a good no, thriller. And, and in some ways, I would consider it like lesser Hitchcock, which is not necessarily an insert yeah. to the film and more just a statement about how good of a director he is overall. Yeah. And it's like there's not really any big stars in the movie, so I think it sort of yeah. gets you know, a bit uh, not as talked about as much. Uh, like I said, Shadow of Doubt, that's a really good one. Some really great performances in that. And Rope is just a classic gay, gay icon movie. So, yeah. Yeah, and a really good like one taker kind of the the one taker yeah. before that was a really cool thing you wanted to brag about as you made an Oscar push. His first uh, I think it's his first movie in color, right? So that's it. It might be. First yeah, the end for history. Yeah, absolutely. Zach, what about these movies? Uh, what do you think about this decade of history? Yeah, I've seen about half of them, and and so Notorious is the one I was pushing to do, actually do for the show. Um, that is one of my favorite Hitchcock movies. What do I remember about it? I seen three years ago. Very little. I don't know. So I remember really loving it and really loving Ingrid Bergman in it. Uh, the, uh, three of the other ones I've seen are like near the bottom of my favorite um, Hitchcocks. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Suspicion. Um, I find just, you know, a little, they're very light movies, um, but also just kind of, you know, corny. I think Suspicion's a little better the second time I watched it, um, mm -hmm. but don't really hit, you know, as deeply as a lot of the other Hitchcocks. Um, and Rope, I, I am just extremely bored by. And maybe because I missed the gay, the gay um, combo part of it. I need to view it for the gay lens, and then I'll be all about rope. I think this decade in some ways is the 1930s is Hitchcock really trying. Like, it's just a very weird decade because you can't find a lot of Hitchcock's work. It's hard to find a lot of those movies. A lot of them are very low quality because he's working with really small budgets in, budgets in Britain. In this one, he kind of moves to the U.S. He starts... 
he starts doing what you think of Hitchcock. He starts getting his stars. Like you can look at the suspicion, shadow of a doubt, spellbound, notorious rope. He is starting to get his Stuarts and his um, Grants. He's also starting to get his higher level um, famed female stars for his career. It is really the 1950s in some ways where he kind of explodes. That's where he makes in the 50s and 60s or where he makes some of like his his most acclaimed films. Um, I think there's some really good work in here. I think that um, the parodying case is like shockingly underseen and also like really, really good. That's uh, Peck, right? I believe, I'm yeah, I believe that. so. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. really good. Um, I don't like Spellbound as much as some of the people, some people who love that. I like that a little bit. Um, Shadow of the Lifeboat are really good. I think this is just a really cool decade. I think this is one of the joys of Alfred Hitchcock is you could go to literally any decade of his film career and pick three or four movies to watch, and you'll probably have a really good time watching them. Even if you yeah. don't get the best three movies, like you could you could go to this list and get a, a saboteur and a foreign correspondent in the parodying case, which are maybe not the best three movies here. And you'd still have a really yeah. good time watching them. Alfred Hitchcock yeah. is saboteur just- is, a, is a classic man on the run thriller. They can, it's pretty, not very long. It's pretty short. Some iconic scenes and like that mm-hmm. doesn't really get talked about at all. You're like, uh, yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. I mean, that's another great thing about Hitchcock. His movies are really short. They're really easy to watch. Um, they're mysteries. Those are, it's really easy to get engaged in them. They will, they introduce the mystery in the first 10 to 15 minutes of every movie. They don't really make you wait that long. Um, Hitchcock is just, he's wonderful, simple mystery storytelling with really high quality. And you watch him work and you're like, oh yeah, the guy who's making these movies is so much better than the person you'd think would be making this type of movie would be. Yeah. So I think, um, anyone have anything else to uh, say about 1940s Hitchcock? Are we, uh, we all talked out. Oh, good. So we went into the future of the 19th. All right. Well, I would like to thank Michael Campbell, our uh, biggest fan and um, an awesome uh, guest host today. We're uh, wonderful and glad to have you. We will definitely try to have you back. Um, thank and you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We'll have to read more of your emails if they come through. Um, next Maybe. week. We'll get an email from someone else. Where do you email it? I don't know. I don't know why Michael has Lucas's email. He does. <laughs> um, it's it's not Lucas's email, Zach. The podcast has an email. No, we don't. <laughs> it's in the it's in the description of every episode. Oh, wait, really? Is it connected to Streamer? No, this is no. I haven't. Did you the create podcast? an email for our podcast? It was literally yes. the first episode. The podcast has it has had it has had its own Twitter and its own email since the first episode. Wait, we have our own Twitter. <laughs> this is this is going to go well with my next email that uh, you will read. It's going to blend in nicely. Exactly. Lucas does no, not talk about. It. Lucas, Lucas Do we need does, to hire a social media manager. <laughs> no, we're good. We don't have enough views right now to hire a social media manager. Michael, Michael, you're in charge of our social media now. <laughs> Congratulations, Michael. Oh, what, hell I, yeah. Yeah. As early uh, watchers of the show will know, Michael was the producer, and then we didn't pay him, so he quit. But he has yeah. agreed to come on occasionally as a guest to talk about movies he likes. Um, but with all that, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Zach. We will be uh-huh. back next week. When with we, Benjamin uh, Button. About... No, because no <laughs> one wants to hear that. And we'll be talking uh, the 1950s Hitchcock and focusing on the film The Wrong Man, which I think is wonderful and underseen. But with that, thank you, Zach. Thank you, Michael. I have been Lucas. You know who these two guys are. And we will see you next week.